This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Hope you all had a pleasant Memorial Day weekend. Today is Tuesday, May 26th. The Dow was up 529.95 points today, or 2.17%, ending the day at 24,995. The S&P 500 was up 36.32 uh, points, or 1.23%. Ending the day pretty close to um, 3,000. And the VIX was down by 0.53%, ended the day at 28.01. We saw in terms of 10-year treasuries, that remained unchanged at 0.695%. And, you know, I mean, really part of that good news came from the fact that Novavax uh, said on Monday that it had, you know, started the first human study of experimental coronavirus vaccines. Um, you know, and then there's been larger larger amounts of states reopening. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's led to, to some big gains and, you know, shares like Carnival and uh, uh, MGM Resorts, you know, was up 11%. Um, you know, airlines were really up in a big way. United Airlines and Southwest uh, rose, you know, uh, 16.26% and 12.64% respectively. Uh, Grant, I know you've got a whole bunch of series of numbers uh, that you have as well. Uh, how about we hop into those? You bet. Thanks, Drew. So some of these numbers are, are really showing that America is getting back into some feel of normalcy. We saw uh, really five charts in the deal book produced by the New York Times today. The first one being that uh, people are, are moving around a little bit more. We saw requests for directions for driving, walking, and public transportation uh, all tick up uh, over the weekend and, and in, the, in May as well. We also saw air travel still relatively low in demand, but there is has been an uptick with with a lot of people actually flying over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, looks like air travel went up about maybe five ten percent in, in the last week, and then uh, U.S. hotel occupancy went up uh, almost about ten fifteen percent between April and May. And then we did talk about it last on the last podcast about restaurant reservations being down almost 95%. And just in, in the last couple of weeks, we, we've seen that tick up uh, and now is probably tick up about 20%. So overall, it looks like as states are, are opening up, we, we are seeing uh, people cautiously begin to go back to some type of, of normalcy. And, and I think that as you just mentioned some some good numbers today, and I think that we're seeing stock futures be pretty flat today, and that's because we're we're seeing investors weigh economies reopening as well as the continued U.S.-China trade tensions that I know we'll get into a little bit. Yeah, as much as the markets have certainly rebounded, you know, as we, as we brought up, uh, there still seems to be remaining worries that this could be a dead cat bounce um you know for all of you who don't know it the cat dead cat bounce revert refers to a short recovery uh because even a dead cat will bounce from a great height so um you know, it's definitely one of the more morbid terms used in the industry uh but it is what it is um according to you know a recent bank of america survey 
There's just been 10% of fund managers expect a V-shaped recovery. So three quarters of those fund managers expect a U or a W-shaped recovery. And, and importantly, you're really seeing this in these funds' cash balances. So cash balances for this fund in uh, the Bank of America survey were 5.7% in May. The 10-year average is 4.7%. And it's that so it's significantly up from the pre-crisis level in February, where it was sitting at 4%. Um, Grant, what do, you, what, what do you think about this? You know, were the fund managers and these respondents, are they overly pessimistic or, or what's kind of driving this uh, in spite of, you know, some of these massive, massive amounts of stock market recoveries we've been seeing? Well, first, I just got to say, as a cow, cat owner, I think the uh, dead cat bounce is, uh, is a little offensive here. <laughs> but if the name sticks, I, I guess you got to got to use it. As we talked previously on this podcast, I think that we are looking more for a U-shaped and maybe even a W-shape as we may see a, a second decrease, a serious de- decline in the market and eventual rebound from a second wave of corona cases. Uh, overall, the biggest driver of a V-shaped recovery, the Bank of America survey said, would be due to a, a vaccine. So the, the biggest catalyst for that V-shape would be if, if we did find a um a vaccine for the coronavirus. One thing also that, that there was some commentary on this is that the, the difference and maybe why this V-shaped recovery uh, may, be, may be here to stay is because we saw such speed from the Fed and Congress with the, the spending package that we've talked about numerous times and then also what the Fed has done. And, and they really compared what the Fed has done compared to other bear markets in 2008, 2000, uh, and that the Fed acted rather quickly, slashing interest rates, promising to buy unlimited amount of bonds, um, and, and so on. But I think these fund managers are, are really looking at, uh, as states begin to reopen, the second wave of coronavirus that could really begin to continue to derail the economy more than it's already already has been. Uh, and then one other note that this survey found is people do think that you know, unemployment, and, and I am believe this as well, that unemployment will come down faster than previous bear markets. But one thing is that we could have per- predominantly long high unemployment, uh, and that could be another driver for one of these U, U-shaped recoveries. But overall, it, it was interesting, and, and I think that they're right. I think we're going to see more of a, a U or even a, a, a W-shaped recovery. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and it's interesting to note that, you know, the Fed released a report on Friday, 78 pages, and then they showed, you know, there's still significant, you know, vulnerable risks and price declines um, to asset prices, um, you know, so there's financial strains, there's a potential they may reemerge. Uh, let's kind of transition over to a policy front. I mean, what I thought was interesting is that the Senate, you know, recently passed a bill um, that's going to require a lot more uh, oversight. This is really geared more to China, but, you know, it affects uh, kind of the counting standards of, you know, pretty much any foreign country. Uh, We saw Alibaba drop slightly last Wednesday in a response to this. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what the Senate's trying to do. Uh, This bill was sponsored by Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy. So I guess, you know, 
what what it really looks like and and what some of the aims might be. Well, the bill requires companies to certify that they're not owned or controlled by a, a foreign government. So really targeting the the Chinese companies that are listed on the exchange. And so if they're unable, if American regulators are unable to inspect the company's audits for three consecutive years, then the firm securities will be banned from listing on U.S. exchanges. And I think this really shows how angry Washington is uh, with China for for how they have different accounting standards and the manipulation of maybe some of their earnings. Uh, and overall, I think we're just continuing to see increased increased tensions between the U.S. and China, especially we saw last week that, that Beijing did pass or is passing uh, that Hong Kong legislation that, that we have not been in support of for, for a long time. And so overall, you're, you're seeing there was a unanimous consent around the U.S. lawmakers and, and how to handle Chinese companies. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Chinese companies retaliate in some way. Uh, but overall, it, it's a very, I would say, uh, pretty brutal law to, to, to just delist companies on the exchange. What are your thoughts, Drew? Well, I think it's funny that, you know, the statute isn't necessarily about a China, but at the end of the day, it's about China. Um, you know, you had <laughs> SEC chairman, you know, Jay Clayton stated, you know, on an April 21st press release that in emerging markets, including China, there is substantially greater risk that disclosures will be incomplete and misleading. And in the event of investor harm, um, substantially less access to recourse in comparison to U.S. domestic companies. Uh, so, you know, he made that statement. And we also know that on July 9th, the Securities and Exchange Commission is going to have a roundtable where they're going to go over the views of investors and regulators uh, and any and other market experts on their views, uh, you know, in many countries, including China. Um, a good example of a company uh, in which, you know, uh, th that's been recently in hot water was uh, Lucan um, Coffee. And so they really represent the Chinese response to Starbucks. You know, they've been for a while considered a promising up-and-coming coffee brand. But in 2019, you know, it was revealed that its chief operating officer fabricated, you know, um, sales to the equivalent of, you know, 310 million U.S. dollars. Uh, so, so for, you know, the beginning of this year, you know, uh, Lucan Coffee is now down 90% and both the CEO and COO have been fired. So, you know, there is a pattern um, and there's definitely examples of, of, of companies, you know, emerging where, uh, you know, the board's been unable to inspect, you know, companies, accounting firms. And, and so, so I do think, you know, you need, you need more regulation, um, you know, especially when you're looking at, you know, big retirement uh, packages, you know, that, that have exposure to, to a lot of these companies. Well, that's a great point. And we did see the White House come out and, and say that they're, they may restrict investing in Chinese companies and that billions of retirement savings and, and risky companies propose a, a threat to U.S. national security. And I, and I think that's a, an interesting point there. Uh, just while we're on the topic of the White House, we did see a, a sen senior advisor, Kevin Hassett. I'm sorry if I got that name wrong, but he, he really disagreed with Jerome Powell's thoughts on how long it will take the U.S. economy to recover. 
based on what we previously just said, I, I do think that we are not going to have a, a very strong third quarter or fourth quarter and growth may pick up in, in 2021. But uh, he, he thought we were headed for a very strong third and fourth quarter. So what's your take on who's right on this matter, Drew? Well, yeah, he's, you know, he, he feels that the recovery, the economy is already kind of recover. Um, and he, he points really to middle of April, the 11th or 12th, where uh, what he sees is the bottoming out. So really, um, it's not so much what he says exactly is it's not really when does the recovery start. Uh, because absence a second wave of the disease, it already kind of has begun. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's, I mean, the fall is going to be a big, is going to be a big issue. Uh, I mean, we've talked about how, you know, in the Spanish flu, the second wave was a big resurgence, uh, with the colder weather and, you know, with some of the opening up, it came back with gusto. So if that happens in the fall, that's really going to derail things. Um, but you know, when, when we look at other people within the Federal Reserve, you know, entirely, uh, you know, we have the Dallas Fed Reserve uh, President, you know, Robert Kaplan, you know, uh, who, who still thinks we could have a relatively quick re recovery. So, I mean, you definitely have, you know, a wide ver variety of opinions on this. And, um, you know, in terms of, you know, Kaplan, he came out last Thursday and, uh, you know, says there's, there's a big push for testing and that could really, you know, help us create the V. So, uh, you know, within, within the same institutions, the Fed or within the White House, there's definitely been um, a lot of back and forth on, on what we're looking at in terms of the recovery, whether it's already begun um, and whether we did, in fact, bottom out, you know, in the middle of April. Well, it's interesting. And, and just to quote him here, he said the Kaplan, this is from, from the Dallas Fed, is the highest return on equity investment we can make in this country is testing. And so uh, he, he seems to think, even though we, we have tested quite quite a number of Americans, that instead of spending trillions on, on bailout packages and relief, we should be spending more on on testing instead. And that's how we would really be able to combat the virus until a vaccine is ready. And I think he's looking at what has happened in, in South Korea and even in China, where they're able to screen millions of citizens and then really be able to stamp out who has the infection and, and go from there, which which is a really interesting take because I think uh, right now in, in the United States, you can really only get tested if you have the symptoms. Uh, and we know that there are some people who are asymptomatic and do not show any, any symptoms, but yet are are carrying it around. Some, some may call them super hosts, uh, but there really is no capacity for mass testing uh, in the United States. And I think that that should be a it it should be a big motive right now. Yeah, no. Today we've only conducted you know slightly over ten million tests, but uh, you know in China they were screening that much you know with, with within pretty much the course of a week. So, um, so yeah, I mean it it is it is a big thing. Uh, it's certainly I think you know what's going to have what's going to enable us to get through a potential second wave or the rest of the summer. Um, you know, we'll be we'll be ensuring that. We spend a lot of money on testing. Um, one one thing, yeah, yeah, and oh, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, and 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 it's really it is who's going to be driving this? Is it going to be the, the the federal government or is it going to be state by state? Because we we have seen that state by state right now, uh, with a decrease in income tax and sales tax and property taxes, that their sources of income 
are, are beginning to fall and will continue to fall if we if we stay in a recession. So, you know, overall, it'll be interesting to see how how states combat this, and even more importantly, their their budget problems. So what are your thoughts on on states uh, maybe not being bailed out by the federal government and having to declare bankruptcy, which is what we saw some comments by Mitch McConnell uh, in, in the previous weeks. Yeah. Well, yeah. Last month, you know, Mitch McConnell indicated that, you know, states might be a time for a bailout for several. Um, but, you know, we should, like you mentioned, but we should put more in context that, you know, the Great Recession ended in 2009. But, you know, the, by research be done by uh, Pew's Charitable Trust showed that a lot of states didn't really return to their pre-recession levels until 2013. A lot of money was invested in rainy day funds for the event of a next recession. But, you know, during this time, states have spent way less on, on higher education has been down. State funding has been down for 13 percent. Um, but in, in an extremely big takeaway is that state infrastructure spending as a share of GDP, you know, has been at its lowest level in more than 50 years. Uh, infrastructure and shovel ready projects obviously being, you know, um, they're expensive in the time being. But, you know, if you wait for a long time and you know, we've seen roads and bridges collapse that cost a lot more money in the long run. Um, and, you know, it's certainly a detriment to our GDP in terms of mobility and safety and, you know, the ability to transfer goods and services. So if states aren't spending or they're not raising revenue or, or the federal government doesn't do a more robust job to help bail several of them out, I do think you're going to have, you know, some large budget crises and you're, and you're going to have, uh, you know, it's just going to be tough for states to really create communities once again where you know people want to live and work um at the end of the day right well and as you mentioned the the growth since 2009 where else are they going to cut because we already seen them take the hatchet to as you said higher education and infrastructure spending and so there's not really that much more they can cut there or wouldn't be that high of a quantity and then they also have their tax revenues decrease because people who have lost jobs aren't going to pay income tax. People aren't going to be buying the new homes or, or higher luxury goods uh, that they pay taxes on. So overall, I, I could see some states be, as you said, in, in trouble moving forward if we don't see uh, a federal, maybe a federal bailout or uh, then themselves having to increase, increase taxes, which in a recession is, is a pretty tough thing to do. Yeah, I mean, and there's, I mean, Medicaid should be mentioned as well, right? 30, 36 states eventually went through, you know, Medicaid expansion, but now with unemployment rolls just exploding, uh, it's, it's easier for unemployed people to get on Medicaid. So all of a sudden, you know, you're seeing that going to be, that could be a huge driver of costs uh, for state budgets here coming up as well. Definitely. But I mean, it's not only in the United States, right? And just from a, a global pandemic, we're seeing that over the next five years, the global economy could, could be cost $82 trillion, yeah. which is just an absolutely uh, staggering number. Uh, but it will be interesting to see uh, what happens in, in Europe, especially, uh, and Asia, even though uh, Asia seems like they may be uh, a little better prepared than, than the European countries and, and the United States here. But we, we may see large structural shifts uh, with, with people saving more and, and not having such a disposable income and taking a more protectionist role. Uh, and then, as we mentioned before, it'll be interesting to see what happens with global supply chains and, and how that affects 
the overall uh, growth of the global economy. Yeah, I mean, the, that $82 trillion, um, you know, that they came from the Center of Risk Studies at the University of Cambridge's uh, Judge Business School. Uh, and yeah, that's the course of over, you know, five years. And to put that into perspective, last year, when we're looking at the GDP for the world's largest 19 economies, that was $69.2 trillion. Uh, so that's kind of a worst case scenario. But even if we take an optimistic perspective, you know, that'd be a loss of $3.3 trillion um, over five years. And then if we're looking at the U.S., you know, in terms of their ranges, they have us at five-year losses of $550 billion on the low side to, to $19.9 trillion on the highest side. So um, certainly, certainly a wide range, um, but, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, you know, None of it's really good. Um, it's, we, ha- <laughs> we haven't talked about uh, the EU for a little bit. Um, I mean, one thing that, that's been interesting is uh, France and Germany are both kind of gotten together in terms of, you know, creating a, uh, a fiscal fund. It's going to be based on a lot of um, grants. It's going to be roughly $550 billion with the hopes of helping out ailing, you know, economies, especially when we're looking at, um, you know, some of the Southern European, you know, countries that have, that have had budget crises for quite some time. Uh, so, I mean, I guess it's a lot of takeaways on this, but a big thing is, you know, with Britain gone, you know, the Franco German, you know, Alliance is really going to shift a lot of policy. Um, typically there's four countries that are really known as frugal, which is Austria, Netherlands, um, you know, like Sweden, Denmark, uh, and they might be really pushed into to going along with this because you have so much of the political and economic clout, you know, is this, that's going to agree to this grant and is going to agree to, um, you know, creating this fund. Well, there is uh, some other pieces of the fund as well is, uh, they have seen that they would like to I- increase spending on green and digital transitions. Uh, and then a- another big piece that they're looking for is screening on Chinese and other non-EU investment in strategic sectors like energy and imports. And then obviously the, the main part of the proposal is the 500 billion euro recovery fund. So it seems like they may be sprinkling in a, a little bit of a- additional policies in the proposal to, to maybe target those, uh, the, the frugal four, as you, as you just mentioned, but uh, pretty much they're, they're trying to do something that hasn't happened in the EU and they're trying to do it at a very large scale. Uh, and so I think that there will be some compromise here because we saw the Southern countries, Spain and Italy really pressing for some type of coronavirus bond to help finance their economic activity, uh, whereas the northern countries just flatly rejected it. Uh, so it looks like they're trying to to come with, with some compromise there. And, and as you mentioned, I think having France and Germany, two of the larger companies in the EU behind it, should, should push this a little bit closer to the end zone. No, yeah, definitely. And, you know, in, in, in light of Brexit, it's really going to be interesting to see what coalitions, you know, kind of come out of the EU and that how that affects trade policy and, of course, monetary policy within that block, but also, you know, with a, you know, Franco-German alliance, how they're going to be able to 
kind of utilize that clout and what that means for the United States and, and future negotiations uh, in, in regards to, to trade and, and to, to treaties in general. Um, in terms of clout, you know, there was a really interesting um, article that came out in The Economist that is discussing that, you know, we look at hard power, um, you know, really in terms of you know, the, the military and, and um, you know, the ability to kind of utilize your force in, in that way. Uh, soft power is more cultural, but when we're looking at the United States where we've lost a lot of our power is, you know, what we've created as a financial power, you know, so going back from the Bretton um, Woods Agreement, uh, you know, the fact that the dollar has been the world's reserve currency uh, and how that's really started to change, um, you know, largely because because we one we've implemented, you know, um, sanctions and then you've also seen, you know, kind of boom and bust cycles that have, you know, caused countries to try and find alternatives to the United States, you know, financial plumbing, so to speak. So, uh, you know, I, I know what might be some of your takeaways from this article. I, I know I certainly found it interesting and, um, you know, the structure and the, and the changing of, you know, you, us as the dominant financial powerhouse and interesting as well. I, yeah, I found it really interesting and I would encourage people to, to read it. I know sometimes the economist articles can be a, a little long, but th this was a good one, especially because it, it really walks you through how, the American financial system become the dominant player in the in the world, and and really there, as you mentioned, the one big piece is that right after World War II, we saw the dollar become really the the backing currency, uh, and but then we also saw in the 70s, really with the spread of ATM networks, and then also two major credit card networks, which Visa and Mastercards, they were able to expand overseas. And then being able to have cash machines as well as cards, they really had the dominant infrastructure uh, all across the world. Uh, then we also uh, have seen that created also in the 70s for, for all the bankers out there, the swift messaging service. I remember having to do that in my days at Wells and it was uh, a little archaic, but at, at the time and even still, uh, Banks all across the world are able to send messages through this system, and therefore, for international clients, they can send messages to, to different banks to communicate and transfer funds. And even today, we're, we're still seeing uh, 11,000 members across the world today, and we're seeing that over 30 million uh, messages are, are being sent daily. And so, we were the creators of that. So, really, really. Uh, ingrained in us. And then also we had in 2008 where we had what was 35 banking firms really come down to the four big ones, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, JPM, and, and Bank of America. And now we're, we did have that financial dominance, but really what the article is, is saying is, yes, we, we have created that financial dominance, but then over the last couple of years, by adding sanctions to uh, Iran and also different companies in, in Russia, and now with our, our our policies against uh, the Chinese, we're seeing that companies, or sorry, excuse me, countries are having to look elsewhere for their for their financial systems and, and set up different piping so that they, they don't involve the American financial system. And that really may have a, a strain on the overall global footprint that the uh, American financial system had. Uh, and it, we saw it 
over the last three administrations with trying to use the financial as a weapon and instead of continuing it to to be almost, I would say, a, a global monopoly in the banking sector. Yeah, ultimately, at the end of the day, we've seen market cap of the world's 30 biggest banks that in the United States has gone down over the last few years relative to, you know, other countries, uh, whether it's, you know, China's a big one. Um, but, you know, it's the, the share, especially 19 and 2020, uh, has certainly gone down. And, you know, what you're looking at is, you know, to this point, you know, the United States has captured, American banks have captured, you know, 52% of the world's investment banking fees. You know, but if you're pushing out China and there's sanctions on China alone is now 15% of the world's GDP. Yeah, you're just going to see a lot more movement to alternative banks. And, um, you know, we're just going to lose some power and some clout as a response. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and if we continue to, if we think about the investment banking platform, that's one, as we previously mentioned, you know, delisting different securities for their accounting practices. I mean, that's, a, that's another take a shot at, at international companies and then uh, Visa and MasterCard, they still process almost two thirds of card payments globally, card payments globally. So uh, it'd just be interesting to see how how we have used our financial power and and how it may be backfiring and and people may have to take their business elsewhere as other banks continue to grow. Yeah. Um, I mean, and with that, you know, get into the segment of, uh, you know, what you're kind of paying attention to. I've been certainly, you know, looking forward to seeing what Joe Biden, you know, will announce as a vice presidential candidate. Um, He said that soon, but it's been kind of weeks of that. So I don't know how much longer you can draw this out, especially with conventions canceling. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think it's time for Joe to, you know, make an announcement and see how that affects, you know, the election and subsequently what we see in the markets. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who we who we pick. So if you had to put a guess, who who would be your guess, Drew? Um, I think you'll probably go with uh, Kamala. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren would definitely help out with some of the the progressive left. But I think because you, you have a third, about a third of the party doesn't think the guy's that liberal uh, in the first place. So you know, there's always that kind of civil war dynamic within the party. Um, you know, what happened last election is is playing out similar um, in terms of, you know, whether he's a centrist or whether he's not liberal enough. Uh, but I, I so, so I think Elizabeth Warren would help out that way. But, you know, Joe Biden's 78 years old. Uh, Trump's over 70. Uh, I think you need the VP to be someone who's going to be the future of the party um, and not and, and Warren, you know, she's 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 up there as well. So I, I don't think you can have uh, just a slew of septuagint generation people. And you know, no, <laughs> no, uh, no clear vision for for the future. So I think Kamala would be good, or Stacy would be a, a wise pick. But but we'll see. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. I think Kamala is a maybe a good pick for him. Uh, in terms of what I'm looking at, just to change gears, two big things. One, we're going to see on Thursday. A judge in Vancouver is, or sorry, tomorrow actually is going to uh, announce if uh, the the CFO of Huawei will be extradited to the United States to face fraud charges. She was arrested in Canada in December 2018, so that may also just continue to stir the the Chinese and the U.S. tensions. 
And then one more long dated thing is I, it's interesting to see what colleges and universities are doing as they finished out this year, uh, mostly online and as they prepare for next year. Most colleges and universities are preparing for a downturn due to uh, a decrease enrollment from international students. Also, some students who just don't want to go to class online, they don't think paying for uh, that tuition to to attend classes online is is worth it, and also not to increase debt in a market downturn. And so it'd be interesting to see uh, how big a drop there is in college enrollment when we see it in the fall, and and how that impacts uh, higher education moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's been years of people making fun of University of Phoenix and their model. Oh, I mean, look who's laughing now. Um, Everyone's functionally now a, a graduate of University of Phoenix. So, yeah, that will that'll certainly be interesting to see how secondary education plays out. Um, but, yeah, uh, with that, thank you all for tuning in. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe, like, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks again, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.